Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everybody, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're doing well and enjoying this spring. Um, We've got a great new episode for you here. We hope you enjoy it. And if you would like to support the podcast by giving monthly, you can do so on script.study forward slash donate. Or you could give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd appreciate that. If you haven't done it yet, just take a few minutes to do it. It would help us out. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. Enjoy. Our guest today is Dr. Brent Strawn, who is D. Moody Smith, Distinguished Professor of Old Testament and Law at Duke Divinity and Duke University. He's the author of several books, including The Old Testament is Dying, Honest to God Preaching, which I hope to have as a future episode on OnScript, The Old Testament, A Concise Introduction, Lies My Preacher Told Me, and the book we're discussing today, The Incomparable God, Readings in Biblical Theology. Also, and I hasten to add that he hosts a podcast called In Parallel, which is an offshoot of OnScript that looks at resonances between biblical and modern poetry. So, be sure to check that out if you haven't already. It's a, it's a short-run series. We did uh, six episodes, and we plan to do more as well. So, Brent, welcome back for your fourth OnScript episode, or tenth if you count the In Parallel episodes. Oh, thank you, Matt. Good to be back. I, uh, it's a true honor to be back for the fourth time. I don't know if we mentioned that it is my fourth time, but I'm really appreciative to be back. And, uh, again, I, I think that I'm behind, um, that, that one guest we all, we all look for, we all look up to. Yeah. Professor Shabladson. I'm behind him, but I, you know, I'm fine with that. I'm not really worthy to open his uh, Greek New Testament, really. If if he if if he has one, I don't know if he has one, but if he did, I don't think I'd be worthy. He can, of opening he can, it. he doesn't have one, but he can look it up online. So um, he doesn't Good. he doesn't yes. need one. Yes, blue letter Bible, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. 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 Good to have you back, Brent. <laughs> Hope you're doing well. Thank you for this book, The Incomparable God: Readings in Biblical uh, Theology, and. Uh, it's a it's a bit different kind of book, so maybe you just want to uh, talk about uh, the the process by which this book even came about. Uh, yeah, you know what's the, what's the backstory here? Well, the backstory is that it really owes uh, I owe everything in the book owes so much to uh, to the editors, uh, Colin Cornell, who I know has been on the show uh, recently with you, talking about his first love, Elephantini, and. Um, also, uh, Justin Walker, uh, two of my former students at Emory, and uh, I hope you'll have occasion to have Justin on at some point. His uh, new book that's coming out is Remarkable Treatment of, of Violence and Lamentations and Neo-Syrian Art. Ah. Um, so, uh, Justin and, and uh, Colin, uh, you know, honored their old professor by kind of getting their heads together and saying they wanted to put a collection together for me of uh, some of my pieces. And so it's uh, 18 essays that they've sort of curated and selected. Um, 12 of them have been published before, six of them are new. And I just sort of gave, um, gave them access through Dropbox to all my stuff. And they looked through it and uh, picked their favorites, uh, a couple things they 
wanted to include, I had designated for elsewhere. And then, um, and then as I say, I wrote, wrote about, uh, six new pieces for it. Uh, three of those were fresh compositions of essays and, and three were, um, talks or sermons I've given before. And so we're in various stages of, 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 uh, completion. And Justin Collin wrote a really thoughtful introduction to the work. They were the ones who um, came up with the title. And what they saw was a kind of thread through some of my work, or maybe all of my work that I confess I hadn't fully seen before. And that's where the Incomparable God title came from. So, so much owed to uh, Justin and Colin, and I'm thankful to them. Big shout out to them. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a fabulous collection. And, and I, I think some of the, the, the best uh, biblical theology happening right now, and uh, just really thoughtful uh, series of essays. I, I enjoyed reading them. I was telling a colleague, in fact, who was asking me what I was reading. I said I'm reading this collection of essays, and it's just pure gold oh, uh, all the man. way through. So, you know, I've read uh, some of your essays before, but a lot of these I hadn't. So, so I appreciated that. Um, and interesting to have someone else look in on your work and find those common themes that run through because. You know, you're you're not someone who has who has stuck in, say, one book your whole career and said, mm -hmm, "I'm going mm -hmm. to uh, just be a uh, Leviticus scholar uh, for life." Uh, some, I mean, most scholars don't do that per se, but a lot of them do get tons of mileage out of one book that they work in. Um, That's right. Uh, so I was tempted. I was I was tempted to really settle in on Obadiah. I mean, there's so much there. I was thinking about it, but <laughs> I decided, you know, after I gave it, you know, approximately half my career, I thought, no, I should move. I should move out to something like Joel, something like Joel, exactly. Or, you know, Malachi. So you've you've stuck kind of hung or hung out around Psalms and Deuteronomy. I mean, would those two? Mm -hmm. Would you say, in terms of places in the Old Testament, be be the places where you've done the most scholarly work. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Pentateuch and, and poetry more broadly, I think, is kind of how I self-describe. But I, I admit that I've dabbled around a good bit, and that's um, been fun for me. It's also kind of exhausting at times, right? Because if you dabble into another section, you got to try to get up to speed a little bit, and you or a lot of it, and you don't, you don't want to appear uh, like a dilettante, you know. Um, but I find I find moving around exciting and, and yeah. um, life giving, and uh, I think if I were to be sort of just in one sort of field my whole career, I I probably find myself a bit bored with that after a while. So I, th I think it's partly a function of that kind of wanting to stay interested and, and lively about things. And I do think there's some cross-fertilization that happens that I think back over my career and, and the early days that I spent um, as a graduate student um, working on the Princeton Seminary Dead Sea Scrolls project, for instance, uh, really kind of formed certain habits of mind in me that continue to pay, uh, I think, dividends. And so, you know, even things that you don't continue to work on extensively, um, I dabble in the scrolls here and there now and then, but but I'm not a real Dead Sea Scroll scholar. real people like that, you know. And so uh, that's still helpful, though. I think it's fruitful. The the analogical questions and evidence and assessment of them is uh, it's been really fruitful for me and has not so far in my career, you know, held me back from promotions or, or, or tenure or whatever. And so that's been a, a joy for me. Yeah. Is that something you had to... I don't know, make, make peace with that, that you are, you do have a wide range of interests. Um, cause I think, 
some of us in the in the field we we look around us and maybe we we have a certain image of of what different what a scholar ought to look like um and or have you always felt like no this is who i am kind of coming right in and and not something you had to discover per se but you just you just knew from the beginning that you're a wide-ranging kind of scholar. Well, maybe a bit of both. I mean, I th- I have this funny story that you'll appreciate because it took place at Emory and it, I had my two senior colleagues there when I taught there and I was in my third year review. And so my two reviewers, faculty members, internal faculty members were Carol Newsom and, and Luke Johnson. I mean, and it doesn't get any better than those people, right? And they're reviewing me at my third year there as an assistant professor and I'd published a, a number of things, decent number, I think, for a third year um, assistant professor. And so they sat down with me and they said, uh, yes, well, hmm, you've published a number of things. They, they seem a bit disparate. Um, so we kind of wanted to know what, what motivates your writing. And I was kind of having this out-of-body experience, right? Because here I am with Luke and Carol, who I looked up to, and these, you know, demigods and biblical scholarship. And I was thinking, man, these people aren't as smart as I thought they were. <laughs> because because I'll tell you what motivates my writing, getting my name in print so I have sufficient number of publications to get <laughs> tenure so I can continue to, to feed my family. That's what <laughs> motivates my writing, you know? And I just, uh, of course, I didn't say any of that. Mm-hmm. This was an out-of-body experience. I said, mm-hmm. hmm. At which point then Luke jumped in and said, well, what motivates my writing is uh, experience. Uh, I'm interested in Christian experience. And then Carol jumped in and said, what motivates my writing is rhetoric. All of what, all of my writing comes back to rhetoric. And I thought, this is fascinating. And I thought it's also intriguing, right? Because they're at a certain stage in their career, full professors, chairs and everything. And they're looking back a little bit and, and they're probably, you know, hindsight's 2020. And here I am at my third year review and I'm just trying to, 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 to make sure that I, I, I keep my job. But I think that in retrospect, I do have, um, certain things that kind of have have marked my my publication record and and Colin and Justin's flagging of the incomparability of God is one of those things and they start with a comment about my wide-ranging um work or, or ranginess or something like that they call it and it was you know they speak of it appreciatively and that was that was meaningful to me and and so I do think um it is kind of making peace with that and my um restlessness in some in some areas. But I'm conscious, I, you know, to answer your question fully, I'm conscious of how I could probably, not probably, I could be a lot better in certain areas if I just stood still and, and, and dug in even deeper. Yeah, I, I don't see it that way. I, I, I really appreciate that in your work um, that, you know, you'll do a collaborative project with your brother on, on psychology and the Bible, and then you've got depth in Ancient Near Eastern studies and and poetry, narrative, contemporary poetry. I I think that just that adds to the depth um, because you do it well. So let, let's get into some of the content of the book. You know, the you have an essay early on talking about ways that the the entire book of An- uh, Genesis develops the idea of imaging God uh, as well as its limits. So it's it's easy to confine the idea of the image of God to Genesis one to nine because that's those are the only places it 
it it really appears. Um, but you take it further. So what are what are some of the ways that Genesis is potentially developing the idea of uh, image of God, and, and what what benefit do we have by looking at the entire book as opposed to just those first chapters? Yeah. So this has kind of been an interesting question for me. This is on my third essay, I think, on the Imago, and uh, I still don't think I got it right, but. Um, I was in the first two really um, impressed with, um, you know, Richard Middleton's work, which mm-hmm. I think is fantastic on the image of God. And um, it was sometime after that that Richard Briggs wrote his essay on the image of God and so, it's something like, a, and other things Genesis does not make clear. And I thought that was such a clever title. And so it captured my eye and I read it. And uh, a lot of what I do in this particular essay is building off of Briggs. Um, and he thinks that, you know, as, as important as Middleton's work is, at the end of the day, it is sort of an extra textual explanation of the Imago because it's in so embedded in the discussion of what the image might mean in the ancient Near East, which is something I explored in those other two essays and which I think is quite important. But, you know, um, if, if we, you know, the, the textual evidence is so limited, of course, it is limited to those first nine chapters. But if, uh, if we want a textual imminent interpretation of the Imago, then maybe we shouldn't overprivilege extra biblical data. And so what Briggs thinks is that maybe this is kind of a hermeneutical lens through which we read the rest of the Old Testament, that the Imago is actually an anthropological question. And in my essay, I try to further that a little bit by, by talking about the image of God as a verb or as an ethic, not as a noun or an essence. Uh, In fact, I've come to really uh, be attentive to and bothered by the extensive discussion in so many Christian circles of us us being humans as quote-unquote image bearers or, or throwing that language around. Because I think in the history of interpretation, what the image is is hard, hardly clear, and has been the subject of a million different interpretations. So to throw, to throw it around as as if it, it means something to say it, we are image bearers, I, I don't know what that means. We got to kind of first explore what the image is, and if you look at this in Genesis, I think there's two ways to go about it. One, of course, is what is God's own image in Genesis? You know, how is God figured? And God's figured in uh, a number of ways, and that's that's one of the pieces of this essay, incomparable in a way, right? Multiple ways, and also preeminently in the first chapters, uh, nonviolently. And so, if you kind of combine that stuff, Briggs's question and all these these other data points, then you can start tracing how the uh, you know the uh, anthropoi, how how the human figures image or do not image the deity in what follows. Cain, mm, violent, not imaging the deity, not imaging the nonviolent deity, and so on and so forth. You get some ups, you get some downs, you get a lot of downs, you get a few ups. But then you get at the end of the book, you get Joseph, uh, who I think is kind of the climax of the book, obviously in terms of the structure of Genesis, but also in terms of this question of the Imago. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, it strikes me as you're saying that, that um, it's very interesting how there's almost... Okay, so l- let's say that we go with this idea that Imago Day is underdetermined in Genesis 1. And let's also give the writer credit that that's on purpose in some way, that that it, it's, a, it's a question or a quest that we're given at the beginning. It's interesting that as you turn to Exodus, that you other you get another strategic 
ambiguity with Yahweh, um, with the revelation of the divine name. So, so these really fundamental questions, who, what is a human? And then who is, who is Yahweh? are strategically underdetermined in Genesis and Exodus. And so mm, yeah, exactly. um, I like that. Like what yeah, that's good. What are these is that a kind of wide do you see do you think that kind of thing might be a wider strategy across scripture? Do you see um you know, I was talking with uh, one of my former professors, Gary Schnichter, recently about this. Um we recorded a podcast and um and talking about like ways that like some fundamental events in the Old Testament are, are are like really ambiguous, and that there's something important about that as a rhetorical device or narrative strategy. So, what, what do you think on that front? Well, I I mean, inspired in part by by what Colin and 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 Justin identified as a kind of a a, a theme in this, and and also building on another piece that really would have would have fit this collection nicely, but is slated for another one. Um, I think, I think that the sort of, um, on the move, moving target nature of, of God is a way that the old Testament, the way is the way Israel keeps, um, itself from, from, I, you know, fixating over much on just one thing, um, which could easily become, uh, you know, an idol. I mean, it's in some ways, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's related to the second commandment, you know, if you number them that way. But I think it's also really related to the incomparability formula, to whom can you liken me, says the Lord, you know. And so, God is sort of always um, moving. And uh, in this other essay, I, I have a footnote, and it's, it's, uh, it's Genesis to a Judith Wolf, um, who pointed out to me, uh, after hearing this paper I gave that uh, C.S. Lewis has a similar kind of uh, discussion of these um, angelic figures in the space trilogy where they they look like golden rods of light and that's only because they they try so hard not to move they're moving so fast they have to like stop try to stop moving and they look like shimmering gold rods but they can manifest to the human eye uh, but they do it through these like, you know, a million different kaleidoscopic images. And in the second um, novel, Perlandra, one of these angels does this to the human protagonist and he can't even take it in. It's just overwhelming, the 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 quickness of the different images, flashing, 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 bear, human, whatever. And I think I think that that's something of what's going on with the presentation of God in, in, in the Old Testament, that uh, in its variation, it is affirming certain things about God and at the same time uh, seriously curtailing and containing the human propensity to fixate on just one. So whether we really like an image of God or whether we really hate an image of God, it really doesn't matter because it's not standing still for very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could imagine a kind of tension there between like a God who wants to be known and understood and near, but then on the other hand, not contained, not reduced not pinned down. Yeah, and then of course that that's then it's uh, you find not only human um uh you know metaphorizing of the deity. You have God's own met- self-metaphorizing. Um I am like a bear to Ephraim, a lion to Judah, you know. Um so that you have God's own sort of um you know, revelation that is both is and is not in terms of the metaphorical presentation. So I think that's, um, I think that's part of what's going on in the Imago stuff. Um, and I think what's intriguing about 
Joseph at the end is that, you know, he kind of goes from, from, from not a great example, a little snot nosed, you know, brother who's, you know, uh, tattletailing on his, on his big brothers and stuff and, and uh, overly egotistical, et cetera, to someone who has all the power and could pay back as, as, you know, significantly definitively as he wants. I mean, he could single-handedly end the promises uh, to Israel um, and he acts nonviolently. And, um, and that's sort of in the ultimate kind of image of God, of the nonviolent God there as a move towards forgiveness and provision. I will provide for your little ones. Do not fear. They speak to, the brothers speak to him as if he's, if he's God, right? They use that particle of entreaty that's used only in prayers to God. And, and Joseph's attuned. He says, am I, am I God? I'm not God, but he, but I image God. <laughs> I image God. I am an image of God, and so uh, I I I read Joseph the Joseph story with fresh eyes, and it was also then for me not a small thing to think about why so many um, early Christian writers thought about Joseph as a type of Christ. Yeah, yeah, and and you, I think in that essay you refer to Gary Anderson's reading uh, there of a kind of pattern in his life of you know, all the way down into the pit and the sort of symbol of death and then coming up out as well. Um, so, on the, yeah, there's a lot more, and it just kind of sparks all kinds of ideas, you know, thinking about, you know, whether in its uh, underdetermined qualities, there's an importance to the mystery of human person as well, that that the Bible's wanting to resist over-defining in, in, in Genesis 1. We've got the incomparable God, but also the mystery of the person that... Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That, that. I've been thinking about this a little bit. I don't know much yet. I, it's one of these dabbling things I'd like to think a little bit more about. But I, I do know that there's uh, increased attention to the multiplicity of the self in, in a positive way in psychological discussions, uh, the braided self is how some people talk about it. You know, you kind of inhabit different roles and therefore different selves. And, you know, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a professor, whatever. And that these are complementary. There's not always uh, on the same page. They might have different nuances or whatever. And I've thought about that with reference to, um, not, you know, the Old Testament more generally, but particularly with Ecclesiastes and his contradictions. Um, I've thought about that, um, if, if this is sort of a hint towards the the multiple self that is uh, feels different ways at different times, you know, inhabiting different questions and different roles. Yeah, good. Um, so, if we, we move on to this, thinking about this incomparable or incomparable God, I, I'm, I'm a little self-conscious now. I don't know which to go with. Um, I'm having tomato soup after this for <laughs> <Okay>. lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it sounds more. It sounds more British or something. Tomato. tomato. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you make a, a case for Yahweh's super abundant benevolence, which is a which is a great phrase. Um, looking at Exodus thirty four six and seven, and another another key moment in the revelation of who God is that at some level is defining of God, but also contains its own mysteries to be sure, right? So, so Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the passage, you know, where Yahweh passes by Moses on the mountain, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love, all of that. Um, and it has the, the judgment clauses at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
yet not letting the guilty go and go and punish, punishing to the third and fourth generations. So I'd be curious to to ask you why, you know, at the end of the day, you see this as revealing a God who is super abundantly benevolent. Um, you say he is um, uh, ultimately not simply or predominantly benevolent, but super abundantly, if not almost exclusively benevolent. So, how do you come to that view, given the judgment stuff in there, which, you know, at one level, you might think, like, these are two sort of warring qualities in in Yahweh. That's one way to read it, right? Yeah, and that's how I've often read it or heard it explained, um, though I've always heard it explained as well by my um, professor, uh, Pat Miller, of blessed memory, that um, that if if we do read that way, we have to read it that the two poles are unequal and definitively so. I mean, third, fourth generation punishment, but thousands uh, of uh, showing the steadfast love. So this this essay emerged from, and that conclusion emer, emerged from the close poetic analysis of this unit, which emerged from a class I taught at uh, Emory at, way back when um, on the Bible and poetry. And uh, my teaching assistant that year was Katie Heffelfinger, uh, who's um, now at the Irish Theological Institute and wrote a, a great dissertation on Second Isaiah, which um, I've uh, also depend on in this essay. And also we had a poet in residence named Melissa Range, who's gone on to a, a quite a, a good poetic career and, and teaching career. So we're really blessed with uh, a, a great teaching team. And by that, I mean those two. <laughs> and the, the students liked them better, no doubt, than me. But um, yeah, I was kind of taken with that unit, which I thought was intriguing. And I was taken with the question, one of the questions we were dealing with, which is kind of the meaning of a line, line meaning versus sentence meaning, and all that jazz. And um, this kind of remembered this text that I had read, the statement I'd read, uh, in Dale Bruner's um, commentary on Matthew years ago in the Lord's Prayer, where he said he tried to make the case that in heaven, on earth as in heaven, applied not to the just the third um, imperative, but all of the first three imperatives, and um, that the lineation sort of can be read that way, and mm. that so like hallowed be your name also on, on earth, earth as, as in heaven. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I will be the, the kingdom come on earth as in they will be on earth as in heaven. So that that it kind of applies all back and started making me thinking about gapping and all that jazz in in Hebrew uh, parallelism. And so in this essay, I do a kind of rather exhaustive or exhausting maybe analysis of the poetry. And I do think that some of these things are doing double duty. Um, and so that uh, the way God shows steadfast love is in part by not leaving wrongdoing unpunished. Um, and that the forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin applies to the children, even the grandchildren, to the third and even the fourth generation. So I make a case that these these pieces of the of the poetry are actually doing double duty, and readers will have to read it more closely to to see if that's the case. If they agree, but if it is the case, then what you have is just this over. I mean, it's not even close anymore. It's because even the punishment is now a, a sign of benevolence, and the forgiveness is is also goes back to the third and fourth generation who've been who who are who are slated for punishment. So that I think is a 
helped me see what was going on in that unit. That unit is so strange, you know, and here's where Katie Heffelfinger's uh, monograph on Second Isaiah was, was helpful to me because her argument in Second Isaiah is that what, what is presented there in the poetry is this presence of God, the speaking presence of God, which is what the exiles most need to hear. And they need to believe that God is with them, cares for them, etc. But there's been damage done. So God has to admit that, and and also God has to admit how they how they are speaking about God, you know, and what they think about God. So there's there's both kind of you know tensiveness in in tone, a kind of judgment tone, and then forgiveness and tone until the sequence is resolved. She thinks in Isaiah fifty four, and um, in that unbelievable statement about God never being mad again. Yeah. And I think that's actually what's going on in Exodus thirty four too. Is that God has to sort of acknowledge, yes, this is part of who I am. I punish for wrongdoing. And that's what happened in the golden calf. But what, but what is, is and, and I have to acknowledge that, like the damage has been done. The scars go both ways. The, this fundamental breach uh, of Israel's uh, breaking of the covenant and the commandments at the mountain, and also God's acknowledgement of, of, of the aftermath. But what Israel really needs to go forward is not just to acknowledge, just not just to remember that their God will and can punish them, but also that God can and will forgive and is not and is mostly almost entirely inclined to do so, and that that's that's what will enable God to ultimately move forward with them and them to move forward with God. So I think all that's kind of captured in that poetry in a dense, even if at times ambiguous way, um, because that whole unit is somewhat ambiguous. I mean. Yahweh seems, you know, slow to to go until this this revelation is given. Yeah, yeah, such a such a rich text. You know, I, I think Exodus thirty four six and seven and the surrounding territory is it is kind of an, an analogous to Genesis one in the sense that it's one of those texts where the more you go back over it, it just keeps yielding. So I, I really appreciated that that careful poetic analysis when, when you were talking about gapping and the idea that you know sometimes a poetic line will assume say information from a previous line or 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 a verb or a noun or something like that um it made me think too how uh, psalm 136 uh describes the um you know Yahweh striking down the firstborn of Egypt as a manifestation of chesed of his, oh, yeah. uh, his steadfast oh, yeah, yeah. love enduring forever yeah. so so there you don't you don't have like these warring poles of on the one hand God sometimes going to come in judgment and then on the other hand sometimes in mercy but actually that in that case at least the judgment on Egypt as a manifestation of of chesed uh, low love that's right. Of course, that raises issues about violence or social location and uh, absolutely and, and understand, you know. But but I think that that is that is far more emic, uh, and uh, and that is that's something I I take up in other essays in the in the book. For, far more emic than sometimes maybe our more quick to judge etic um, kind of you know assessment of these things. And and just for listeners, like to e- emic is sort of an insider take, like how did Israel themselves, the writers, uh, view. Uh, God, experience God, as opposed to our second order questions about that arrangement. <laughs> um, That's right. Yes, emicinetic, very important. It's not as good as tomato, but it's close. It's not British. It's not British. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to Deuteronomy. As I mentioned, you've you've hung out there a fair bit, and mm-hmm. it's 
it's taken a beating in some quarters that prize nuance and complexity, um, you know, uh, the, the messiness of it all. Um, and then you come to Deuteronomy and things can feel, at least on the surface, very black and white. That we're confronted with life and death decisions. Um, what are what are some ways that maybe you'd want to commend Deuteronomy's rhetoric to us, or at least help us understand what the book is doing by speaking so starkly? Yeah, I think it's a great uh, question to kind of think about more broadly too, because I think if we could talk about our cultural moment, if we could categorize it. Um, and I don't know if we can, our cultural moments are, are pluriform in many, but I think, again, I think, I think that most people are probably, uh, uh, you know, kind of put off by the clarity of Deuteronomic or covenantal kind of rhetoric. Um, if you really start thinking about what we watch on TV or stream or whatever, it's far more complicated than that. And so I, I think that, that most people even, um, you know, religiously faithful people are probably more akin to think like Job and Ecclesiastes are probably right. <laughs> and then it's a Deuteronomy, you know, you got to look at it with a bit of a, you know, a scant, uh, you know, scowl or something. But so much of the Bible is lives with Deuteronomy. I mean, Deuteronomy just leaves its imprint. You know, I think it's Gordon McConville calls it the juggernaut of the Old Testament that where he says, wherever you go in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is somehow there. Even if people are resisting it, it's there you know so it's such an important book to think about and um you know in terms of i think it is more nuanced than people tend to think and of course everything is i mean and you know one of the things i hope is emerges from this book is my own habits or my own what i would like to believe my own habits are about these issues about complicated issues in scripture um especially things that people don't like and and oftentimes they're things i don't like they're actually, those are places where you have to sort of roll up your sleeves and work harder. Um, that you have to, you know, get after it. <laughs> you know, it's a, is this exact, is this actually how it is? Or does a fine granular assessment demonstrate otherwise? It's so easy to treat these things quickly, but that just won't do. Um, and the problem, of course, is our own sort of cultural moment prizes quick hit discourse rather than long form granular analysis and um and yet you know our society also cannot function without that long form careful analysis whether it's in medicine or law and if it's there then we have to do it you have to do it in theology too i think and in scripture so for me i started thinking about this and again uh in the complexity of of the covenantal stuff i think for me the the person who's helped most helpful was um was uh, Dennis Olson and his work, especially on the Moab Covenant in 29.1 and following. But in the, there's two essays in the book on Deuteronomy, and, and one I try to get into the issue of, uh, you know, why is it so repetitive? Was, why is the re rhetoric so repetitive? And is that just sort of stupid, simple-minded, whatever? And I was helped by um, a study of repetition in film and literature by a scholar named Bruce Cowan. I don't know how I came across that book, but I do think it's related to when you're this when you're ra with your ranginess that leads you into those places, right? <laughs> well, I think it is related to that because I think it it found it so helpful. Like it was like suddenly I could understand Deuteronomy's rhetoric in a better way thanks to Bruce Cowan, who's not doesn't talk about Deuteronomy but mummy movies and all sorts of interesting things, and. Um, 
And he says there's three he kind of typology of repetition. One is kind of destructive repetition. That's Freud's, you know, kind of the repetition impulse or whatever. Um, and then the emphasis, that's the second. Then the third kind is is transcendence, he says, where, you know, you you repeat things. And if you repeat them, it's almost like you can occasionally, not every time, like not even realize where you're at in time because you've repeated it and you've, you're suddenly transcendent. You're transcending time, at least for a moment. And I suddenly saw a whole lot of things about Deuteronomy's rhetoric and, of repetition. And so I thought I could dispense with the destructive rhetoric, really demonstrate quite easily the emphatic nature of Deuteronomic rhetoric, that it is, you know, focused on key verbs like keep, observe, do, and in certain grammatical constructions, which suggest like how careful they are to be, that is to be done. And then the objects of those verbs, statutes, laws, judgments, et cetera, commandments. And then the time frame, which is now, today, here. And and suddenly I thought, man, this is this is not only emphasis, but there's something happening within Deuteronomy itself with all this emphasis that actually makes of the reader or listener exactly what Deuteronomy wants when you're done. When you're done with the book, you are someone who has been transformed into someone obsessed with these words because you know which ones to keep and you now know how important they are. And if you know how important they are, then you're going to go back and reread them again. Uh, and so that was that was really helpful, uh, Colin's analysis to me to, to think about Deuteronomy's rhetoric. I, and I think for those of us in teaching, you know, one of the one of the markers of someone, a student undergoing a change in their thinking is that they begin to speak in a new way. And I, I like the idea of, you know, coming out of the tail end of Deuteronomy and you're, you're kind of given a language that's um, learnable that you've been practicing repeating already if you've read the book. Um, and, and so it facilitates a kind of transformation of the reader. And that, that kind of leads into another dynamic you talk about, which is inscription Um what is what does this idea of inscription mean? You're not talking about like carvings in a in a um, stella or something like that, but no, no, but that's cool, isn't it? That stuff is really yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about inscription is the way that uh, uh, pieces of literature write us into them mm -hmm. as readers, right? So we're, as readers, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, some people talk about it just yeah, as readers, you know, you're put into a subject position vis-a-vis -vis the literature. Um, but in Deuteronomy, you know, the rhetoric of, of Moses in that book is, is clearly writing this second generation into the events at Sinai, which they may or may not have been alive for, um, according to the biblical chronology, right? The biblical timeline, they were uh, 20 or younger, and some of them conceivably have been babies. Um, and so they weren't the ones who committed the wrongdoing with the calf, but they're spoken to as if they were. And uh, the famous line in in 5.3, you know, not with our, our ancestors did God co cut this covenant, but with us, those of us here alive today. Well, sort of, but like also not, because um, all those people that were there that were cutting the covenant are now dead according to the numbers material, right? So, Moses really inscribes the current community into the former community's storyline. And... Um, and not only does he do that, then he instructs 
the next generation to do that with their next generation in chapter six. Um, when the children ask about the laws, you know, uh, Moses says, well, you tell them the story about the laws. Not don't tell them the laws, tell them the story about the law. And so he's basically making every parent into a little Moses, writing their children into the story. And so inscription, I think, is is functioning in multiple levels there in the book and is a really effective effective uh, rhetorical move to involve the listener, uh, involve the reader, so that I can't hold it at a distance anymore, because it's not just about them, it's about me. Uh, even though chrono- chronologically, it's, it's kind of not about me. But wait, no, it is. It is about me, after all. Yeah. Good. Uh, all right, we're going we're gonna to do like a super fast speed round. Two questions. Um, first one, uh, what is black and white and red all over, but it's not a newspaper? Black and white and red all over, but not any. I, was, I thought I had this one, man. No, no, no. You're too smart. This is from my daughter. It's from my daughter. Okay, um, I'm I, I'm not as smart as your daughter. Clearly, from Lucy to you, uh, that's an embarrassed zebra. <laughs> <laughs> all right, nice. nice. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Kudos. Yeah, mm-hmm. kudos. she wins the speed round. Oh, she, you know, she loves jokes, and and in fact, my like. <laughs> All the fantastic jokes that have been part of this show have, like, you know, probably half of them are from her. Nice. Uh, so, uh, what do you think is the best book in biblical studies in the last, say, uh, pick a random number, 52 years? Thank you for, for this. You, you, listeners might want to know that um, I asked for this question. I think this is my fourth time on the show, but I've never been asked this question. And I've heard many people ask, you know, of course, being a super fan. So, I really wanted you, Matt, to ask me this. And all I can say in response is, um, Matt, I'm offended. I can't believe you asked me that question. I'm just, <laughs> I can't, I can't answer that question. I just, I take, uh, offense at that, uh, that I could pick one. Oh, no, I'm just joking. Okay. I will say one. Yeah. Uh, actually I, I thought about this really and seriously, I did think about it. And of course, many great books have been mentioned. I thought about it in terms of what books do I have two copies of? Mm. I used to live like a, a long way from my office. So like I had a small select number of books that, that were double copies where I had one at home and one at my office. And uh, so I don't know, maybe I have about six or so or seven of those. Maybe maybe okay. there's a few more, but I can I can think of a couple of them off the top of my head. I have two copies of uh, Cross's Canaanite Myth and Hebrew Epic. I mm. kind of grew mm-hmm. up in that kind of school. Yeah. Uh, I have two copies of Child's Introduction to Old Testament of Scripture. I have two copies of Hayes and Pressner's uh, History of Old Testament Theology. Mm. I have two copies of uh, of the Women's Bible Commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have two copies of, and this is actually one that I know has not been mentioned on the show, I think. Yeah. But I actually think can make could, one, one could make a case for it being a very important Okay, book. drum roll. Maybe not the most. But here it is. Two copies of Otmar Kael's Symbolism of the Biblical okay. World. And uh, that's something that I dabble in a little bit with the iconography. And Kael's book, 1972, so we're really at 51 years, right? Um was translated into English in uh, 78. Uh, so we're, we're within the 50 year room. That really inaugurated a subfield and changed uh, a whole bunch of attitudes towards Israelite religion, towards the study of the Psalms. 
and uh, towards meaning making in ter- in non textual ways. And uh, Otmar's still alive and uh, still chugging, and he just has a number of students uh, there in Switzerland and beyond. I think that's a very very important book and deserves to be included in a small handful of kind of field changing books. And again, yeah. not not as popular as some of these others, maybe because it's a bit um, technical about the art and stuff, but it is, it is a remarkable, like stunning achievement that he, he wrote that, I think when he was 32 or something and the command of the Psalms that he has alone, let alone that coupled with the command of the Near Eastern art is stunning. So, uh, I wanted to lift up Kale's book. That's the one I really want. Yeah. Very good. And for listeners, uh, trying to Google that, that's Othmar Kiel. <laughs> it, 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 that's how you would spell it. So, Othmar Kale, uh, but it, it's O-T-H-M-A-R. Uh, K-E-E-L. Um, so symbolism of the biblical world. That's a that's a great recommendation. And I, I think you've thank you. Thank made you. a good I'm case. I'm still offended you asked the question. I'm still offended. <laughs> it's good. It's but good to be offended. You. I'm offended at myself because I asked you to ask me the question. You know, and I'm offended. We, we live in an age of offense, so it's it's all too fitting. We were um, conflicted selves. So so from from the uh sublime to the mundane, let's let's talk now about what's going on with Elisha. You know, he curses, mm. he curses some boys in God's name. Uh, they come out, or bears come out and maul them. You know, some, some people would think that's a bit excessive, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps, um, perhaps. <laughs> uh, for, for this guy, although, as you point out, making fun of people who are follically challenged is, is no small thing. That's, their, that's that's you're speaking my language. You're speaking yeah. truth to my life. So you know y- your title of the book is the incomparable God. Uh, in what way does this story? I mean, if you could read this story and think this highlights the uh, incomparably disproportionate qualities of divine so-called justice. So, um, what do you make of this story? Yeah, so this is one of those tricky texts where, like I said before, I think you got to roll up your sleeves and get into it and. And I, you know, I've kind of joked around about this text for years because I am follically challenged. And so this is something close to a life verse for me. Um, not, it doesn't, it hasn't yet displaced Leviticus 1340 though, Matt, which of course, as you recall, says, if a man loses his hair, he is bald but he is clean, to which I say, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So, Leviticus 13.40, thank you for whomever put that in there. He's got um, a tattoo on his head. <laughs> I should do that. That's a tattoo, Leviticus 13.40. Oh, so, anyway, um, so I've joked around about this, you know, don't mess with the bald people, etc. But uh, what I have to admit, I was dissatisfied when I started reading about it. And, um, and again, it, it emerged from teaching experiences and thinking about those. And also, um, it emerged, frankly, from an independent study that Colin and Justin and I did together with another one of their classmates, Justin Pancook. And uh, we were doing a theology, kind of a theology of the Old Testament, a theology of scripture, um, independent study. And we we decided to mess around a little bit with Lectio Divina and uh, McGrossy's amazing book called Praying the Bible. And it's a really thoughtful, deep book, short book, but very deep. It's it's not cheesy. It's not like, you know, this is how you do Lectio Divina. Go into a dark room, light some incense, you know, uh, think, think, think peaceful thoughts, uh, you know, breathe deeply. It's not that. He's very thoughtful kind of uh, overview of the tradition and the stages and Lectio and all that. And we did a, and we did a Lectio. I kind of picked it, picked two texts 
uh, somewhat on random, not exactly, but but one was from the New Testament. And this was from the Old Testament, and we did that, and then we came and reported back to each other what what we found, and it was fascinating the kind of overlaps. There was just differences as well, but how the lectio process produced a different kind of sensibility about that text that was less concerned with with uh, the violence of the text and more wondering uh, if if we were these youths that deserved judgment somehow. Um, and that kind of put me onto some thinking and whatever. And so I started reading and I got very dissatisfied with the secondary literature, which I thought was cavalier about the, the actually the, the great ambiguity of the text and its finer exegetical points. And uh, which then devolved into a kind of superior attitude towards the text and a superior attitude towards Elisha, you know, where you can find in the secondary literature that he's sort of a, a newbie to ministry, you know, he's going to learn better, you know, he's like in his first church. And, you know, yeah. people doing their first church, they sometimes, you know, lose their temper, kill 42 youths. I mean, it was <laughs> accidental, but, you know, by the time they, by the time they end their career, they've learned, you know, and it just seemed just so dissatisfying to me. And uh, of course, there's there, there there's no definitive sense of this because the text is vague, but the text has enough in there to really problematize that um, Elisha intended them to die, um, that God is even directly the one uh, that sends the bears. That, that could be said, but mm -hmm. it's not said. And so the text is spare. The text is underdetermined. And, you know, in some ways, it's just all these details are strange that Elisha's already passed the, the children. He has to turn and look at them. Um, and why are they calling him Baldy? And why is he bald? There's all mm. sorts of, of mm. possibilities for that, including that he's in mourning for his master or that he's bald because he is a prophet. He's taken some sort of vow. All of which suggests that when the boys make fun of him or call him Baldy, it may not be just that he's follically challenged, but maybe there's some sort of um, uh, treating his mourning lightly, treating his master's death or departure lightly, treating his prophetic task lightly, uh, and um, and that he's on his way to he's on his way to 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 uh, Bethel, right, the house of God and beyond. So it's just a really remarkable text. I think I gave this as a paper in uh, Walter Moberly's, um, one of his seminars at Durham. And I think he's the one who said, uh, my inner origin is twitching right now about this text. I mean, my, I just want to do something figural with it. Right. And yeah. for me, it wasn't so much figural as much as it was Lectio Divina. So looking at all those exegetical details, which McGrossy says are crucial for a proper Lectio Divina, they're not, they're not at odds with exegesis. It's just more than exegesis. And, and he actually says the wonderful line is exegesis is not technique. It's, it's mysticism. Hmm. So at the end of that essay, I offer my own, my own Lectio uh, experience of that text. And I just think it uh, it produces a completely different assessment of what's going on with Elisha, what's going on with these these youths that mock him, and what's going on with, with God, um, who is really absent from the text, uh, only mentioned by, by, by name by Elisha. Um, so, that doesn't fully answer your question, but if I could do a footnote to it. I would say, I think, again, I think, I think that one of the things that the Old Testament, including its really difficult parts, you could say it's true for the New Testament as well. One of the things I think it does is it shows, again, uh, the term, the incomparable nature of God, but that God is just sort of, 
you just can't contain God. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so the language that I often hear about, in, whether in church or in my classroom sometimes, about, you know, well, God doesn't work that way, you know, whatever way it is. Um, I'm pretty sure that that the biblical God says, mm, I'm not sure you have any idea or any right to say how I will or do or do or do not behave or or, or work. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I reserve uh, pride of place to do to do as I wish. <laughs> that's that's yeah. not a satisfying answer in every way. And in other ways, it's a fully satisfying answer in every way. Mm. So you, you're, you're highlighting maybe a, a hermeneutical dynamic in your work, which is, it, tell me if this sounds right, um, like going to those sites of difficulty and re-examining, slowing down, walking through the details, and and soaking in the complexity and allowing that to kind of transform our experience, not toward, to move toward a sort of definitive solution to a problem, per se, um, but it's it's also um i eugene peterson might have been in your book i can't remember where it was quoted i just read recently where he talks about like exegesis as an act of love and yeah, and yeah, and yeah. and that slowing down and careful attention is that from your book um i don't know but i did quote peterson in that essay i think but i don't know if it's yeah. to that point um and then on the other side so that's the exegetical or hermeneutical tendency and then on the other side the the freedom of god um would you say those are two like kind of themes in your work that you you want to come back to yeah and again i didn't see some of this as clearly until i read um colin and justin's introduction and i thought oh yeah you know i haven't really talked about the incomparability formula extensively mm-hmm. or anything like mm-hmm. that um except in this in this one essay that's not in this book um uh but but i do see how there's a kind of push towards that and i have to say you know i grew up in the wesleyan tradition which is not like known for its you know sovereignty of god sort of thing mm. you know um more on free agency and and problem of evil being the result of human um, decision making and stuff like that but then i went off to a reformed seminary and 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 learned some important things about uh, Christianity and Christian theology that I didn't know uh, growing up as I did. And I think the sovereignty of God, the freedom of God is one of those things. Of course, it's not just a matter of Reformed theology or Wesleyan theology. I mean, as a biblical scholar, I think it's a matter of reading the texts and reading them closely. Um, but I do think that um, this is one of the stunning things about Scripture. And, you know, some of my heroes have talked about this extensively. I mean, ultimately, Brueggemann, that the, the freedom of God, the sovereignty of God, the, the elusiveness of God, uh, the, the inability for anyone to sort of manage God is so important. And the constant tendency, or he, in, in Brueggemann's language, the, the temptation to domesticate the text and to domesticate the God of the text is above all the church's temptation and the just the wildness of the deity. And I've grown in in light of the Near Eastern stuff that I've I read and, and work in a little bit to think that these really wild, even sometimes violent presentations of the gods in the ancient world were in some ways purely indexes of their divinity, that they were just otherworldly, unnatural entities that are not to be trifled with. And so, less a problem of morality than actually testimony to their divinity. Now, that's, get, that's the different 
mindset than what we're used to. We, we, oh, we don't we don't like violence. Well, yeah. of course we do like violence. We watch it all the time. We stream it. We play games with it, and so forth. So we 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 adore violence. Uh, so it's not that we don't like violence, but we just sort of try to pretend it it doesn't exist here and there and whatever. So I think that the that's really an important point, and I think you've identified it rightly. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot more I'd love to cover, including you have a, a really intriguing essay on the ways that the Canaanites in Joshua are and are not like orcs. But I I know we're at the end of our time, so I'm going to leave that to readers to to uh, to dig into um, many more the essays. Tolkien's orcs, that is Tolkien's orcs, yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, Brent, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, discuss your your wonderful book. I highly recommend this to people interested in, in sort of the, the front lines of uh, biblical theology. So, it's called The Old Testament. Um, oh, sorry. It's called The Incomparable God, Incomparable God, Readings in Biblical Theology. And, uh, yeah, shout out to Colin Cornell and Justin Walker for editing that. Thanks so much, Brent. Oh, thanks for having me again. It was great to be on script. Super fan here and forever, Matt. So thanks again. All right. Take care. You have been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.